there are threats. There are underlying currents. There are underlying themes that may very well put a threat to this into the future. If it does form a large proportion of your portfolio, you have to do the work. To buy this thing and just park it away and not keep your finger on the pulse is just irresponsible in my mind. Not, not what you don't know that hurts you, it's what you know that just ain't so. I think one of the biggest threats to Bitcoin is actually ourselves. It's not all these external threats. There's making a change to the Bitcoin code that ultimately opens up an attack vector that compromises Bitcoin. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Welcome in, folks. We are back for part 10 of our Bitcoin Basics series. Josh and myself, Dan, are joined, as usual, by Daz and Seb. It's been a downright privilege doing this basic series alongside these two wildly intelligent and thoughtful dudes. We have details in the notes about where to stay in touch with their work, and be sure to get a copy of their book, B is for Bitcoin, The Essential Guide to All Things Bitcoin. In this book, these two eloquently cover many of the concepts we've hit throughout this collection of conversations. Although on this show, we regularly like to throw in healthy doses of steel manning, We've spent the vast majority of our first 129 episodes, as well as the first nine parts of this basic series, exploring the boundless reasons why Bitcoin is prone to succeed, grow in its adoption, and accrue value. This week, we flip that script, and in this hour and a half, we explore viable threats to the Bitcoin protocol and network, reasons it could be delayed, underachieve, or fail. Now, I'll be dead honest, this really isn't basics material. If you're newer to Bitcoin and or haven't listened to the first nine parts of this series, or you just haven't spent considerable time studying Bitcoin, then I'll recommend you shelve this episode and come back to it. Much of what the four of us say in what's upcoming may seem blasphemous to the hardcore Bitcoiner. And that's the fucking point. We want to trigger the hell out of you. If any one of us feels captivated and enamored by an idea, a perspective, a group, an ideology, a movement, a religion, or an asset then real intellectual integrity necessitates we drop the shallow certainty, escape the black and white, embrace the gray, and engage with responsible counterargument. Nothing is a guarantee, Bitcoin included. Dare to put your big boy or big girl pants on and play the inversion alongside us. As the philosopher Daniel C. Dennett once said, seek out the arguments that make your own position uncomfortable The truths that have made it through the crucible of critical analysis and experiential testing are the best we have. A couple other quick items before we sling this one. Folks, get a cold card. If you have a cold card, well, then you likely realize you want another one. You can use code BCB, that's code BCB, for a delicious discount on these wondrous pieces of hardware. And visit our CoinKite link down in the notes for discounts on a variety of CoinKite products, including the Block Locks. These hardware wallets or signing devices are the best in the business. They're secure as hell, chocked full of useful features, and they just simply work. You can also use code BCB for 10% off tickets to the Bitcoin 2024 conference in Nashville next July. These tickets will only go up in price moving forward. So if you're going, why not avoid wasting precious sats and get them ticks today? Lastly, open enrollment is upon us. If you have healthcare needs or healthcare bills and you want to save money while supporting people rather than large insurance companies, check out CrowdHealth at joincrowdhealth.com and use code BLUE for a significant three-month trial discount. 
Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy getting triggered. Seb, keep going with what you were saying a second ago. We had some nice juice being squeezed out of the orange before clicking record, so we thought we'd go back and uh, pretend like it was organic. Channel it. Channel it back, Seb. We were t- you were talking about maxis. So it's interesting. I think like for perspective, I at the moment I'm training to become a somatic therapist and I've always had an interest in psychology and understanding relationships. And what I notice in the Bitcoin community is and this is, to be honest, it's the same with any wild community. You attract quirky individuals. And quirky individuals are amazing. I love quirky individuals. But the one thing I would say is that when we get a lot of these toxic maxis, for those newcomers, and to be honest, even a lot of other individuals, what a lot of people conflate is it's the first time they've found community. And given that it's the first time that they've found community, many times they're not protecting Bitcoin. They're not speaking out about Bitcoin. They're simply feeling threatened that someone is threatening their community and they're, they're defending it. And that's where I don't think this is necessarily productive towards Bitcoin. So being able to recognize as an individual when someone is simply trying to protect their community versus someone is supporting uh, a technology that has the potential to revolutionize our world, I think it's important to recognize those things because we conflate the two of them quite a bit. doesn't help that we're autistic as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. We ran into Dunworth in uh, LA at the conference. He's fucking hilarious. What a delightful, crazy motherfucker he is. Uh, the only thing that saddens me is there's no way when we have him on here, which we will, that he can sling the way he does no. in person. No, there's no way, man. But he basically yeah. said something similar to what you just said. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, we, we just got back, for, for those that aren't aware, we just got back from California. We were at Pacific Bitcoin wonderful conference, extremely well put together, signal packed. But there's an element, and this is true of any community too. So Seb, I agree. This this transcends Bitcoin. This goes to church. This goes to country clubs. This goes to fire departments. This goes, I'm sure same with your electrician, but whatever. It's partly incredible being around all these people, but there's also part of it that can be nauseating. Like when you're in a a group like this, there's so much hype in one direction and there's so much momentum in one direction that you you at times want to pump the brakes, which is exactly what we're going to do today in this episode and say, folks, we got to remember this is a, a tiny sample size of the perspective of human beings and this thing isn't perfect. This thing isn't inevitable. Whether we know it or not, every single one of us is in a filter bubble, right? And so I end these weeks kind of mixed and I'm, I'm pumped after being in the bubble to flip over today and talk legitimately about the risks that exist for Bitcoin, how this technology could falter or fail. And one of my thoughts today is we, obviously we'll maybe insert some counter arguments, but I say we let some of our listeners sit in the thunderstorm, get soaked down to their panties and get real cold out at the campsite and realize, hey, if you say you love camping and you've never been through a thunderstorm, you can't say that. You haven't been through the thick of it. Let's let people get cold, wet, and scared about Bitcoin today. That's my intro thought. For sure. Uh, I think it's an incredibly healthy thing to be able to kind of step outside of the bubble that we've all, we're all kind of curtailing this bubble. You know, we're catering to it. We, we saw, and not to denigrate what went on at that conference, it was awesome, but there are so few outside perspectives that get enough airtime in Bitcoin um, that I think 
it's just the responsible thing to do to do do exactly what you said, Dan. It, it's healthy for us to take a cold shower, maybe dare even an ice bath and hold yourself underwater for 30 seconds and stretch yourself a little bit. You know, you don't want to stretch too hard. You don't want to tear, tear yourself, but you want to stretch. <laughs> I've got I, so I have the giggles gentle, again. Fuck. Gentle reaming, I think, is is pretty much <laughs> that wasn't even, that wasn't even where I was going. I don't know what you guys have wrong with you. We want to strain ligaments. We don't want to tear them. But we might accidentally tear some. We could have some Achilles snap during this hour for sure. Yeah, but you can always get some staples put in that perennium. And I think for me, uh going on the 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 learning journey, I think what you boys are saying is really important. So when when Bitcoin like does inevitably drop in price as it tends to do in, in large in large movements. I can't even move on. Uh yeah. it, it's important. These are the type of themes that I look to to say have any of these happened because these are the important ones, right? So if the price is spewed down fifty percent overnight, right? It's the, has anything in the thesis changed? What are the things I need to check off? Okay, I'm just losing it. Look at Josh. I can't even look yeah, at it. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying. What, what, are the, what are the themes that you need to look to to prove, like if there's anything fundamentally wrong with it? So if it spews 50%, it's like, has it broken? Is the protocol still TikTok and next block? And is the, you know, are the addresses still, is the demand still there? You know, all of these things that you need to check off to say, is there anything fundamentally wrong with it? And I, like that's why it's important to have the conversation. It's important to know what are the legitimate threats to Bitcoin's future so that you know if anything were to happen. Like for fuck's sake, man, I know how hard I've worked in order to stack the the stack that I have. And then like that means generational wealth for me. And if something does fundamentally change with it, which I think is less and less likely as this thing grows, but like it's a reality that what is my exit point? What is it that I need to do to protect my family and the legitimate concerns that may exist with this thing if, if turns out, the, the unknown unknowns that we haven't been able to foresee? No, I totally agree. And I was going to add one more point, which is the fact that, and Dan brought it up, there's no such thing as certainty. And I think that, of course, Bitcoin is the closest thing I've ever been to having certainty in something. Ultimately, you can never truly determine whether something is certain or not and because of that you want to be able to see reality as it is you want to be able to see if there is an actual threat to bitcoin because if you have this relationship with something but you're not willing to look at the dark side you're not willing to look at whether or not there's anything that's going to compromise that relationship then ultimately it's almost just it's religious beliefs it's religious beliefs that aren't held up in, in truth and so i think that it's important to be able to look at the world accurately and determine when something is legitimately posing a threat to Bitcoin so that we can then face that thing head on and work through it. Completely. We are dealing with probabilities, not certainties. When we're talking about really any idea, we all have a, a tiny, tiny window into a massive spectrum of perspectives and ideas. The chances that you are privileged enough and smart enough to have completely cornered the truth is insanely unlikely. Right? And even if you are confident and increasingly confident in an idea, an asset, a technology, a movement, you have to realize that it's just a game of probabilities. I agree that as I've studied Bitcoin more through the years, it becomes more and more probable that it's marching in a specific direction. But we need to be careful 
not to just set up straw men and counter arguments, demolish them and move on like they have no validity. I've seen, and Josh actually sent me a resource of just a list of all the Bitcoin FUD. And the guy just stands up all this stuff and then spends a paragraph each time saying, that's not valid, that's not valid, that's not valid. Well, yeah, that maybe these pieces of FUD and these counter arguments are less than likely, but there's still some chance or probability that there is validity there. Government yeah. risk, centralization risk, bugs. We're going to get into all these things. The last comment I want to make here is I see a parallel between sort of my Christian journey and what I see in Bitcoin. Christians, really conservative, what I would call fundamentalist Christians, love to talk about doubt. The word doubt is brought up all the fucking time. It's okay to doubt. Everyone doubts their faith from time to time. And what these Christian apologists do is they often do what Bitcoiners do, where they stand up the counter arguments to conservative Christianity, the arguments against Jesus rising from the dead, the list could go on and on, challenges to biblical inerrancy, and they just quickly demolish them, right? So it's this very effective but insidious sleight of hand that says, you were thinking this. Let me destroy this in front of your eyes so you never think about it again. You really start unpacking the nuance and complexity of ideas when you find the responsible people that are outside of the group. So just because you've read one Bitcoiner who wrote down 10 reasons Bitcoin can fail and then dismissed them, that does nothing. You have to get outside the bubble, folks. I think it's very important to watch your own emotions. If there's something that you feel triggered hearing that is something you need to lean into and learn more about. Amen. Because that is that that is a red flag to yourself that you have a blind spot. If it if it triggers you or it gets you angry, you got to learn more about it. Even I mean you have to swallow the pill from the other direction as much as you can, the steel manning instead of the straw manning. Um that is the only responsible way to be an adult in this world. To actually take in account, take an assessment of the opposite, maybe less popular point of view, take it seriously and follow it to its logical ends. And then only in that way can you, you know, bring it back to the lens that you originally had. Maybe you can kind of have a larger purview of the actual logical world after you've done that assessment. I know with um, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett talk about this, and uh, although obviously they're not big fans of Bitcoin, I think they have a lot of wise words. And one of those is, the inversion. Like you why I like be, to read them. Yeah. You should, be, um, you should always play the inversion. Almost know the inversion more than you know the position that you're actually playing and be able to defend that position. So if you want to invest in something, well, play the counter argument. Why do you not want to invest in something and do the same thing? I think it's yes. so important. There was, I was listening to a podcast. I think it was, it was with Clay Fink. It was one of the investors' podcasts on the plane going to Pacific Bitcoin. And he was talking about, I forget the name of the book, but it was like, all these horrible investments some of the best investors in the world made. And Berkshire Hathaway made an investment in the, I think it was either the early 90s or early 2000s, where they bought a domestic shoe producing company. And they had all of these good reasons why it was going to work. The numbers made sense. It was very profitable. It had great management. But what they missed was that shoe production was going to go to Malaysia and China and Vietnam. They completely missed that entire you know, gulf, which was a huge problem, and it was a bad investment, and they admitted it. The point being here is that you could be 99% on the right course, but that 1% black swan can land, and it doesn't matter how right you were, you were wrong. When I think that 
I believe that is Berkshire Hathaway. The, the company they bought was Berkshire Hathaway. So they named themselves. Obviously, they continued along that name as a reminder that the black swans are what get you. Interesting. What the once in generational, unexpected instances are the ones that sink ships that thought they were going to stay afloat forever. Um, let's play the inversion, gentlemen. Let's get into the nitty gritty. Let's pucker some buttholes. We've spent a hundred and what are we at? 129 episodes and nine episodes of basics, primarily being bullish. Let's play the other side here for an hour. Who wants to start us off with some valid concerns about Bitcoin? I'll, I'll give it a start. I think one of the less appreciated arguments against Bitcoin is maybe so I'm a big Austrian economics guy. Been reading everything from those authors for the last 15 years. Maybe not so much in the last few years because it's kind of the same thing over and over, but you get the point. That's kind of the view I hold from the world is that Austrian the Austrian school makes a lot of sense to me and to a lot of people in the space. Keynesians are derided. John Maynard Keynes was not a dummy. The guy had a ton no. of really good, really usable lenses to view the world through so whether or not they got twisted by government entities along the way got used for you know propaganda to justify the way that they operate in the world really though what i'm drilling down to is that how sure are we that we're correct about deflationary money inflationary money does provide a carrot you have to chase right we're constantly forced to unload these paper dollars put them into investment vehicles and allow them to get back into the circulation of the world to get, go be productive. Now, if I was going to take the other side of that argument myself, I would say, well, but how much of that is unproductive and wasted because it's forced back into an economy where maybe it isn't useful in the way it is, uh, you know, the places it's sent to. Could be, you'd be, you could be having a lot of useful less companies out there versus the signal-packed companies. But the point here is that how much of the technological development over the last century has been goosed because of the inflation. I don't know. I don't know if there's a real good way to put a metric to that, but it's a good consideration. So now if we flip that and we say we're going to produce deflationary money, how much incentive are we going to pull out of the world? If Bitcoin is as successful as we think it's going to be, you're better off just sitting on your hands than you are necessarily taking your capital and reinvesting it back to work, which is inherently what capitalism is named for. It is, there's basically wealth and capital, right? Wealth is just sitting on money. Capital is reinvesting it in capital goods that are going to be productive and produce something for the world. So that is the question I'm posing for the three of you gentlemen, and I'll, you know, we can comment further on it, but that is something that worries me a bit because it's an experiment that we don't really have a choice in running on a, on a small lab somewhere. It either gets run on a large scale or it doesn't. It's kind of a scary, mystical place we just haven't been in a very long time. And there are arguments that that's, and they're going to get a lot of hate for this, but maybe the reason, maybe part of the reason we came through the last century with so much technological innovation mm. was that we were goosed by this inflationary impetus. God, I love this episode already. I think, um, I think that's why there's a good argument for Bitcoin won't necessarily be the base currency in which everybody interacts, everybody um, uses as a medium of exchange and a unit of account and a store of value. I think that's where 
one or two of those will start to um, really eat into perhaps the third. Um, I don't necessarily see it, and particularly because it's a paradigm shift. Like what what you're saying there, Josh, is like that humans just want to chase for more, right? So it's a for for you us to be on a full Bitcoin standard. It's a complete paradigm shift for what we've been used to over the years in terms of are you going to go sit down with your boss at the firehouse and negotiate your pay decrease each and every year because that's essentially right. you know if you get if you get two bitcoin a year and then your purchasing power is increasing 20 percent compounding year on year it seems to reason that at some point they're going to want to clip you they're going to want to put you down to 1.9 1.8 1.7 sense. the insidious inflation does that for you on their behalf right it it it's it's a conversation that people don't need to have. It's the same thing around, you know. Seb might be able to speak to this because he writes about this in his new book. Um, free plug, Seb. Well done. Um, uh, uh, quite well around how people then treat other savings vehicles, like they treat other houses like other savings vehicles, because our money doesn't save in a bank account when you've got, you know, interest rates. And I might be going off topic a little bit here, but inflation rates below uh, above the rate of interest rates, right? So that's financial repression. So people look to store their value in other things, but what it's going to do is flip housing on its head. Most people, most wage earners, most blue-collar workers see investment properties, but particularly in Australia, investment properties are a way in order for you to get ahead. And it's the notion around if we're starting to denominate everything in Bitcoin, it's like, am I happy for my value of my property in Bitcoin terms to actually be going down day in, day out? And, and that's essentially what it's going to, provide so i see that argument around countries having fiat currencies built on top of bitcoin and those pegs expanding over time i i see that really starting to play and obviously michael saylor speaks about this quite well in terms of bitcoin may not necessarily absorb currency as we know it today currencies will probably be built and exist on top of bitcoin because it's just too much of a paradigm shift for humans to think about stuff getting cheaper in bitcoin over the long term and then it comes down to your opportunity cost around where you deploy your capital so if you if bitcoin is an asset in which you save and that is appreciating but you still earn in currency then it allows you to navigate what you see is going to provide you a better return and my better off parking my currency in bitcoin because it appreciates over time but does it then open up opportunity for me to not save in bitcoin but now we're much better to navigate what is we see true value in other assets we're able to value stocks better we're able to value property better because we have a yardstick by which to measure now and then it comes down you know preston speaks about preston pish speaks about this very well opportunity cost he's not a bitcoin maxi he quite publicly says at some point i'll be looking to roll out of my bitcoin position into other things but he says the the time horizon i'm looking at with the money monetary system being manipulated the way it is my opportunity cost right now there's nothing better than bitcoin and i think that remains true for the foreseeable future but i can't see a point where we're having those conversations like i pointed out earlier where we're sitting down and we're going let's negotiate our pay decrease in bitcoin terms yeah josh to piggyback on your thoughts this would be a perfect example where someone may need to pull a thread more than they already have. If you've read two books by Saifedean Amus and you, all you listen to is Bitcoin podcasts 
and you have Keynesians labeled as total and complete worthless airheads, you need to go study Keynesian economics because you've never interacted with a responsible, thoughtful, intelligent Keynesian, of which there are many. Okay. I'm going to flip over to the other side. I'm going to throw out the disclaimer once again. We've spent hundreds of hours now on the other side of this argument. So we're going to take this side. If I was to defend sort of the Keynesian approach, the inflationary approach, it's, it's quite simple. We've pulled a lot of productivity and innovation forward with a very cheap cost of capital. And when you think about what brings people out of global poverty, which we've been doing as a species, you can say the, the trend is reversing, but if you go back 200 years and you think about what percentage of human beings are in destitute poverty, can't feed themselves, that percentage is going down. Is a possibility that some of that is because with an artificially cheap cost of capital and an incentive to invest that capital, a lot of innovation has happened that wouldn't otherwise, which has allowed the lowest rung to come upward. Another question I would posit to people to maybe challenge Bitcoiners, this is a thought experiment Josh and I run all the time, is how bad really is the world right now in comparison to previous centuries and millennium? I think the world's pretty unbelievable right now. It's wildly imperfect, but in comparison, the opportunity that exists for people, like I said, that low rung of human thriving, it's been coming upward. I think, I think actually right now is an unbelievable time to be a human being. And what can be occasionally slightly nauseating for me is when I listen to a Bitcoiner who's staying in a $400 a night hotel in Santa Monica in an unbelievably expensive uh, outfit at a wonderful beach club with a VIP pass to a conference talking about how much they're getting fucked over. Like most of us are doing okay, especially if we compare ourselves to a peasant in medieval times. So yeah, I think the question can be asked, is there a benefit to a, an artificially suppressed cost of capital that's, yeah, we're in a really, really challenging debt environment, but you could also say like, well, we pulled a bunch of productivity forward. Now we're going to have a debt jubilee of sorts where creditors get screwed and debtors get bailed out. Was it all worth it? That's, that's one side you could go and, and challenge the notion that things would have been better on a gold standard or a harder money for the last 150 years. Yeah. One other thought on this. You could take, I think you could take the argument that you, you could just throw out the entire idea that the monetary system has anything to do with how you know, wealthy we are today. The scientific revolution and basically that, that whole period of time in the last 500 years where we started actually thinking, maybe we don't know everything. Maybe we need to do some experiments and then figure out what actually works out in reality and then build on that. For the last 500 years, that's what we've done and that's what's created the wealth in the world doesn't matter what you denominated in gold, Bitcoin, or dollars. We are all wealthier because of the ideas, those ideas that were built from the scientific revolution up till now. And we, this iteration happens faster and faster, whether or not it's this incentive from inflation or, you know, the golden age in the late 1800s, when most of the modern technology in the world came to being radio and all of the, I mean, most of everything we do right now with cell phones is just radio technology. All of that stuff originated over 100 years ago, but all I'm saying is it's because of the scientific revolution, fundamentally. No, and I, th I think all of you guys have made really good points, and, and I think that one of the 
one of the ways I tend to look at it is that if we think GDP, and obviously this is perspective and preference, but if we think GDP is a great measure of productivity, then naturally Bitcoin does not work in a GDP debt-based world. Because if you have a currency which is increasing in purchasing power, when you've got a, an economy that is built upon debt, even, even if that debt is being used for productive measures, being used for innovation, it's being used for kind of creating a better world. The problem with obviously Bitcoin, for those that obviously may be less familiar, is that with a decreasing, uh, decreasing uh, cost of living, rising purchasing power, naturally that debt becomes more of a burden and the system collapses. And so if we think GDP is a good measure and we like our debt-based world, Bitcoin does not work. They they're, they're, they're obviously uh, hit each other. They hit a brick wall. And so and it's, and it's so tough because naturally my spectrum side of me wants to defend my community. <laughs> uh-huh. Wait, I know. Oh, Some of what yeah. I said pains me, but I, I'm just, we're doing it for the best, you know, the, the greater good. Resist, I'm resisting the temptation to go off for 10 minutes against what I just said, but that's the whole point of this episode, guys. Totally. And that's where I think what's really important to point out is when I say GDP and it's our perspective, it is that we believe in our current kind of financial and economic uh, environment that GDP is the measure of productivity. And the only one thing I'll say in a tiny bit of defense is that we sometimes conflate technology with joy and happiness. We can have advancing technology, but if society on the whole is getting more and more mm. depressed, then what is the point in all of this technology if we're just funneling capital into growth, growth, growth at all costs? No, you're right, though. You're right, though. More isn't always better. I think there's a lot of people that could take that advice into their their own life and and stop and go is it really worth running the motor this hard going for that goal if it sacrifices my ability to do the things i really enjoy which for me includes watching stupid shows with my wife drinking vodka tonic on a weeknight yep i've got so much more i want to say on this but we're already at like the 26 minute mark and we're not going to get to shit if we don't get moving here I think I have a good uh, second topic that parlays on this before we go off, go off as some other stuff. And that's just, we, we don't have to spend a ton of time on this one, but what Bitcoin is up against. Uh, Bitcoin's still really, really fucking small. I mean, it's, it's, what it's accomplished is marvelous, but it's sitting at $500 billion. It's smaller than a number of corporations and individual net worths on this planet. In the sea of global assets, it's, it's very small. It, with that comes unproven to some extent. And it's up against one of the strongest, if not the strongest monetary network that's ever existed. You can say that it's fraying, but the network effect of the US dollar is tremendous. Governments, taxes, banks, majority of global commerce, debt markets. I'm going to read a quote by Lynn Alden from page 129 of her recent book here broken money. She says, a sovereign government can be rather effective at forcing the usage of its currency domestically by making taxes payable only in their currency, by adding capital gains tax to commodity monies, by enforcing legal tender laws that require all merchants to accept that currency as payment, and through various bank regulations that attempt to slow down the supply growth of their currency, they can often maintain a sufficient degree of demand for the currency relative to the available supply. I thought of that quote in tandem with this just because we are climbing a very tall hill and there's a lot Bitcoin needs to prove if it's going to take a serious bite out of this system. I would say what comes to mind immediately is centralization versus decentralization. And naturally, we obviously talk a lot about decentralization and the pros to decentralization. But one of the 
major negative effects of decentralization is that it can be hard to pivot quickly and move in a like strong forward direction when you've got varied ideas in the market. And I think when you look at a centralized entity such as US dollar, the, the US government and whatnot, they're able to direct capital and incentivize staff to go a certain direction regardless of whether or not the populace agree. And so if they want to do something, they can ultimately direct all their energy towards that thing. And I think when it comes to Bitcoin playing the inversion role, we have we place a lot of hope and trust that the community is able to come together and defend itself and ultimately move in directions at which it's able to move over these threats from government and whatnot. But ultimately, it's hard for us to pivot. It's ultimately, it's hard for us to change and react quickly, given that we're a decentralized community versus a centralized community, which can react very quickly and have a goal in mind. Developed countries won't give up control of their currencies will be the you know the last with relatively strong currencies and that's where i think you know we're already seeing the bottom-up approach to bitcoin adoption where if you've got a relatively weak country in a developing nation uh and your other option is to abandon your current currency and adopt something else perhaps bitcoin is the one that you choose to adopt because of those decentralizing natures but from the top-down approach of developed nations like the united states australia canada uh, the UK, if anything, we, we might, and this might be another topic to riff on a bit later, but if anything, it will probably be the um, the the impetus, the, the thought of losing that control could very well be the impetus to um, enable restrictions on ownership of Bitcoin within these developed nations because they'll, they'll see that as a threat to their ability to control and keep their... Um, their finger on the pulse and their ability to go, you know, to to control monetary policy, to control fiscal policy, uh, is is a threat. If your populace are choosing to opt out of that system, we're already seeing it in Australia. Actually, um, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, one of the biggest banks, is limiting withdrawals to crypto exchanges to ten thousand dollars a month. Now, for most blue collar workers, you're like, holy shit, that's a lot of money. But uh, it's beside the point. It's ten thousand because they're already seeing capital flight into crypto markets being a flight of capital now a bank is obviously only as good as and we're quite heavily regulated in australia um in terms of reserves and and um and and the rehypothecation of those deposits on top of and the, the, the credit that gets built on top of deposits but so what they're seeing is these big chunks of ten thousand dollars at a time leaving which puts a threat on their bottom line to be able to um, borrow against and build the credit. Now, their their whole business model is built on interest rates that are earned on credit. So, if they're seeing their underlying capital flying out, that means they can't lend as much, which means it puts a direct threat to their bottom line for profitability. So, of course, they're going. They're already starting to put restrictions on your ability to access your money. Now, you can use that as a really simple example of something that's already happening happening now but you can imagine what that might be like should governments all of a sudden feel threatened around the capital flight from their dollar what steps gives them immense power and control um you know and you, and you can argue for for, for good or, or bad reasons but you can you can see a world where that's uh, a, a real threat yeah dan to piggyback off of what you said about network effects I was sitting here thinking about that, and we have a great example of just how hard they over to, uh, they are to overcome with X, Twitter. So Elon Musk buys Twitter, 
changes the name after having a great network effect with the name. The user base generally stays. He fires 80% of the employees, almost completely hollowing it out. He charges $8 a month for it. A lot of people are paying. You don't have to pay it, but he's charging for it. And you're free to leave at any moment. But because of the network effect that they've garnered there, you've got this competing, you know, this competing, it's a very dollar versus Bitcoin comparison to Twitter and Noster. Mm-hmm. Noster is this decentralized Twitter competitor, X competitor. There's no rules. It's decentralized. Yet X having thrown the baby out with the bathwater is still around, still competing, and people are still engaging on there. And Noster is having a hell of a time, at least with anything outside of the Bitcoin community competing in any real way. And that just shows, I think that's a pretty revealing comparison of just how powerful these network effects can be. You make such a good point there, Josh, which is also the fact that we're seeing the same network effects with uh, like the Argentinian, is it the Argentinian peso? Uh, People, there's Bitcoin. Bitcoin exists. You can use Bitcoin. You can use Lightning. Yet people are still... They'd rather face, uh, whether it's the US dollar or even their local currency, which has annualized 60% inflation for the last freaking 80 years, people are still not moving over to Bitcoin. And I think those network effects are, it's hard to comprehend how powerful they are. This topic, guys, makes me think of timeline risk. I think some people's expectations, when you get a new technology and you get raptured by a new idea, even if that thing's going to play out, you may be at the station way ahead of most of the trains arriving. And I think this is a risk for a lot of people in this space. Maybe maybe Bitcoin does continue to move forward and it and usurps or at least takes a huge bite out of some of these other monetary networks. But that may not play out in the next three years. That may not play out in the next 10 years. That may be decades in the making. And I can tell you, after having gotten back from this conference, there are a lot of Bitcoiners and Bitcoin businesses that are banking on a big pump in the next two years. And I don't, if that pump doesn't come, I think a lot of the underbrush and even some of the trees you thought were mature are about to get completely cleared out of Bitcoin. So my point here is that whatever company you're excited about, community you're in, that's not Bitcoin. Bitcoin's not on your timeline. It doesn't give a fuck. Bitcoin doesn't give a fuck. That's the whole point. And this could take a long time to play out. I think I think one of the ways to game that out is what if the system, what if the fiat system just holds together way better than we thought it was going to? And you know what? It is right now. I understand debt loads are going through the roof, but when you think functionally, all of us were sitting here saying they can't, they can't take the cost of capital there. There's no way the Fed funds rate can get to X number. Well, it got there and it went past. And it's staying there. And at this date and time, the system's still holding together. I'm going to confess, I just dumped my uh, a part of my emergency fund that I thought was going to sit there, maybe some of it by Bitcoin. It's sitting in a Capital One account earning almost 5%. There are options now in the treasury and debt markets that I didn't think were going to exist. Okay, And, and if you just play out your behavior and spread it out to what other people are thinking, Maybe this money can stay a little bit firmer or harder longer, right? Maybe this boner, maybe this fiat boner has more stamina than we all anticipated and, and fucks us over for longer. It's got a tight ring on. I, I said um, fiat's like the Viagra of the monetary system. 
Yeah. Yeah. And the, and I think the other thing to consider too, I'll, and then I'll get off this side of it is inflation is a very complex multifaceted vector. And if your expectation is that just it's inflation's guaranteed to run hot, well, that's being violated a little bit right now too. CPI is coming back down. I mean, I obviously we've gamed this out so much saying that we think that the next decade or two is going to be far more inflationary, but maybe it's not for consumers in the manner that we expected. And the point here is that there's less obvious need for people to find hard assets than we presume in the next decade or two. And that could elongate the timeline for Bitcoin. Yeah, I think you make a good point. There's um, a lot of narrative that um, that shapes around Bitcoin succeeding due to governments failing. And like you rightly point out, like so many macro commentators were saying, it can't interest rates can't go above three percent. Otherwise, you know, this will happen. This will happen. This will happen. It'll be a cascading effect, and we'll have, you know, and and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of fragility still in this economy, and that could very well play out. However. To your point, Dan, it hasn't yet. They thought the firehouse would have to be called. You boys would have to be called in by now at 3%. We're sitting at 45 punching into 5 and depending on what market you're looking at. And that's exactly right. It hasn't burnt to the ground yet where many alarmists were calling for it at earlier stages than what it is now. And that's not to say, like I said, that it won't play out eventually. Um, but I think a lot of the narrative around Bitcoin succeeding is premised on the fact that governments will fail, fiat monetary systems will fail. And that's where a lot of the narrative around Bitcoin number go up comes from was this in, um, inherent failure of the existing system. Um, and, you know, those inflationary effects, like, like you also highlighted, they're starting to come down. They're still there. And, and you know, while you're putting, you're getting five percent putting your your capital in your thing. It's important to note that you're still underneath the the, the inflation yep. rate, so your 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 cost of capital's you know depreciating. Your purchasing power is depreciating over a long long longer time period. But at the end of the day, shit hasn't burnt. And Daz, to chime in here, couldn't agree more. Me putting me getting four point four five percent from Capital One isn't. I'm not building wealth whatsoever, but this is a bit of a veil or a cloud over the eyes of people, right? When when treasuries do yield more, let's just take this specific environment we're in, and you can throw money in these money market accounts yielding X or Y, it's, it's, it's less obvious and less dramatic yeah. that people are losing buying power. So that's my main... It's not that that's a... Awesome, everyone should throw their whole net worth there. I'm still buying the shit out of Bitcoin and will continue to scare my wife with how much of our net worth is going into it. But... If the system doesn't unwind as dramatically as a lot of Bitcoiners expect, the Bitcoin lifeboat may not illuminate as quickly as we presume yeah. it will. Oh, that that's one hundred percent the point. Yeah. Well, there's also a recency bias with that as well, right? So, like the last twenty years, nobody got five percent in any kind of an account you could expect to be fairly safe, right? So that looks really appetizing to people right now because they're just not thinking about the fact that inflation is like eight percent. The other thing I wanted to chime in with is throughout history, these empires last much longer than people anticipate. You know, every generation thinks the world's ending, and every generation is probably just a surprise when everything is fine for a much longer period of time. Um, the, back in like 276 AD is when most historians say the Roman Empire was done. 
People in the Middle Ages thought the Roman Empire was still around at like 800 AD. They still referred to people as the emperor. Like that shit didn't go. That was 500 years later. And it, it didn't exist to antiquity anymore, but people still believed it was there and real. And these things just go on. And like the British Empire, you know, is still here. It's not an empire anymore, but they didn't just, you know, disappear overnight. They slowly and surely lost power and they just are a small regional power now. Yeah. And just, just to circle back on Dan's point around that it directly affects the adoption. When you can get a 5% yield by parking your money in the bank, it, it, it totally destroys my ability to communicate to retirees around why they should own some Bitcoin mm. because their time horizons a lot more constrained than mine and all they're seeing is they need income, right? So they've got this this pile of capital that they need to deploy to earn income. So if they can get 5% now by parking it in and what they see as a risk-free environment, which you know we've spoken about many times that that may not necessarily be the case, but that's the narrative and that's what you're pushing up against to um, you know, that, that discussion was a lot easier when we were saying you're getting nothing for putting your money in a bank. Whereas now you've got to try and explain this, this notion of financial repression, which is not in their face. They can't see it. They can't see this slow erosion of purchasing power over time. So it does destroy the narrative and it does destroy what is quite a big pile of capital that's sitting on the sidelines looking to deploy into assets when they can get 5% yield for doing fucking nothing. Right, that's their income, and that's what we're fighting up against, and that is putting downward pressure on the capital into Bitcoin, which makes number go up. I I did want to make one more comment. I don't. This may incite some other thoughts from you guys, Daz. You hit it on a, l- a little bit earlier, but one one of the risks we absolutely need to peel back a, a touch more is sort of what I would call the draconian government risks, which mm. have grown less and less likely. In my mind, as Bitcoin has become more and more entrenched and the wedge gets further into the door and you have high net worth of individuals and and companies and and huge asset managers starting to embrace this. Nonetheless, if Bitcoin really starts to, to threaten the very foundation of this network effect of the US dollar and really starts to threaten US power, we'll just take the US as one example here. There's a lot of things they can do that it's really cute to pretend like you can thwart, but most most of us will just cuck down real fast, right? I've got two children and a wife that's employed here in a job. I don't plan to leave. So if they make it outright illegal to hold this with huge prison penalties, once again, very unlikely, but just just play out the most extreme example. Um, That's a really, really challenging spot for me. I'm not even going to game that out. But even just choke points, right? They start to really tighten the noose on on ramps. You just have to realize that the price, if price is what you're attached to, is is going to absolutely get demolished for a period of time. If if large asset managers aren't allowed to enter, high net worth individuals aren't going to enter in that environment. Most individuals are not going to have any way to buy Bitcoin, at least for a period yeah. of time. And and that's that's not a likely scenario. But once again, back to the main point, we're talking about probabilities. That's not a zero probability, especially if you think Bitcoin is going to be as disruptive as a lot of Bitcoiners think. George Gammon and Jeff Booth had an interesting debate the other day on Peter McCormack's show. And I think if out of anything, one of the best points that George Gammon had there was the pushback on 
us as Bitcoiners put a lot of um, emphasis on the sovereign individual thesis around jurisdictional arbitrage. And that's yeah. mm. a lot. It's touted a lot by the maxis who have big bags of fucking Bitcoin and a lot of purchasing power. And I think that was the best pushback George had against Jeff. It's like, Jeff, you're loaded. Of course, you can leave Canada if you want. But the reality is for most Bitcoin, like myself, I'm a fourth generational Australian convict, man. I've got one passport. I don't have big bags of wealth in order to buy my way into other citizenship in other countries, let alone have the ability to, and and we've got family, we've got ties, like your point, Dan, I've got a wife and children to think about. She's got family here that she absolutely adores, and, and so do we. Um, we're not going to leave in a hurry. So it's all well and good to say if Australia were to lock down my ability or just come out and outright ban Bitcoin. And it's like, well, it won't change the Bitcoin thesis. Yes, but it's absolutely going to fuck my ability to um, be able to interact with Bitcoin if I'm not permitted. And I can keep it in my head. I can keep it in 12 words in my head and I can try and game that out for the long term. And I absolutely get that argument. However, it absolutely does thwart adoption within that jurisdiction. Yeah. And it's not as easy for you to just go, fuck you, Australia, I'm going to take my capital elsewhere. I'd like to think for I sure. would exercise that right, but it's more than me. You know, Do I care about my wife and kids? Because I'm probably going alone. Yeah, nobody wants to be Ross. You, know? you don't want to get thrown, as the example, the guy who gets thrown in prison for the rest of his life with three life sentences because you decided to give the, middle, the state a middle finger, which, let's be honest, we all do. But when it comes down to it, if you have responsibilities that you you know you owe other people that you're responsible for, you don't have that luxury anymore. Like if you're a single guy who's 25 years old and you want to go be Braveheart and get you know pulled apart in the village square, like <laughs> send it. But we don't. <laughs> and let's be real, most of us aren't going to let that happen anyway because we're pussies. Totally. <laughs> but it, this would massively, massively. It wouldn't kill Bitcoin, I don't think, because it's going to exist. It's going to keep moving. Somebody somewhere is going to run a node, but this is going to, you know, ex extract the length of time that it would take for adoption to happen. To, I mean, you can't even really guess because it could be a very long time. Well, a perfect example of even just seeing this in action is just during the pandemic. Like, regardless of people's views on the jab, the moment people were not able to access their pub. They immediately bowed down and got the jab, which is like, it's interesting. It's great, showing you that the moment example. the government steps in and puts some form of regulation that impedes their ability to do their daily work or feed their family or even get a beer at the local pub, people are willing to create change. Totally. Uh, I mean, hopefully you're comfortable with this, Josh. It's true of me too. Our our job and, and the vaccine are a perfect example. We were forced to get it. I didn't even flinch. I had a different perspective on the vaccine at that point, too. I'll be honest about that. As time has gone on, I've flipped over to the other side. In the moment, with what we were doing for a living, I had no problem getting it. Josh, who often has more foresight than I have, did not want to get it. I'm just more stubborn. He's also smarter than I am, so that helps. Uh, no, he he did not want to get it, but he literally would have compromised his employment if he had not gotten it. And we have a great job. It's not perfect, but we both love it. It provides for our families. We've both feathered a great little nest. It's kind of a funny story, though. I, I almost slipped through the cracks. I just never got it. Never said a thing. Yeah. And then like they came through a couple of different times, and I just kept playing like, oh, I never heard that I was supposed to tell anybody. And then finally, someone pinned me down, and I got fucked. But I was this close. This close. When push comes to shove, though, think about how big of a sacrifice it would have been for you to not get it. 
I know, but then the, in retrospect, they they've already reinstantiated everyone's jobs who got fired from it. Yeah. I wish I would have yeah. just doubled down and said, "Go yeah, fuck but yourselves." What you, hindsight's twenty twenty. You never right. would have known that in the moment. And so, yeah, I mean, back to your point. Um, a lot of these Bitcoiners that think they're ideologically motivated, they're saying that while eating Cheetos in their fucking basement, like. <laughs> Once again, until you have lived through a thunderstorm on a campsite, you you can't say that you're a hardcore backcountry camper, right? I Dude, mean, and it's so funny to think about that in context of history. Like that little bit of like what that little stretch they gave us for that, right? Nothing in comparison to the what nothing. happened in Nazi Germany. Like the kind of influence, the kind of and this is a bit of a, an aside, but like I've said, and we've had this conversation before too, Dan. Like I never understood. How in the world did a group of people do something so crazy like Nazi Germany? How did they, how did you get a large group of people to do something that evil? And then I saw how this, I saw the propaganda from the the vaccine and all of that. And I was like, oh, now I understand. Now I totally understand. And that was like one tenth, one, one hundredth of the account of the kind of propaganda and influence the Nazis held over everybody, you know, when, you know what I, there's a really famous study called Milgram, and Milgram is basically the electrocution study. And for those that aren't necessarily familiar, basically they put an authoritative individual in a room, and then they had a pseudo patient who was kind of being asked questions. And if he got the question wrong, then they would get electric. They would get electric shock, and they would each question they got wrong, <laughs> they'd raise the electric shock. And this person on the uh, kind of who's doing this electric shock genuinely believed that the patient on the other end was a real person. In reality, it was a pseudo patient. They weren't actually getting electric shock. But what this whole study found out is that 70% of people are willing to give a deathly dose of uh, electricity to someone. And so it makes you realize that when an authoritative figure tells you to do something, the majority of people will conform. And that's just kind of how society kind of rolls. I would fry the fuck out of you, Dan, just so you know. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, the the other, other, I I just thought of something new that that I think is a, a really real risk of Bitcoin that piggybacks on this. The momentum in this country and around the world in a lot of ways has been collectivist and socialist. This is the momentum of the voting public. Now, you can be safe at Inamus and talk shit about democracy all you you want. Most people don't have that perspective. Most people have the same view of Winston Churchill that this is the, the best, shittiest system we have for human governance. And democracy is not going anywhere. I hope it doesn't go anywhere. But if the voting public continues to move in a collectivist socialist direction, just because the corner you're in on Noster is all about freedom and liberation and sovereignty doesn't mean that's the collective consciousness Let's just go. Let's go less draconian and just say taxes, unrealized gain tax on Bitcoin of thirty percent. If you don't abide, you're going to fucking jail. There's a lot of things that the voting public could do, even just aside from the policymakers themselves. Just the voting public, the collective consciousness, could have a different perspective on Bitcoin and the holders of Bitcoin than you have being inside of it. Even back when that wasn't the case, right? So the the federal tax in the U.S. wasn't a thing until I think it, I'm not going to quote the exact year, but it was like the 20s or 30s. It was sold to the general general population as this is only for the super rich. Only the top one percent are going to get taxed this federally. There's not going to be any more of that, you know. So they were sold. Everyone bought that based on the idea that like, well, fuck the rich, whatever. Well, guess what, motherfuckers? It trickled down to everybody, and we're all on the hook now. Like the way it's always sold to people is it's not going to affect you who the majority are. It's only this small little minority of rich Bitcoiners. Fuck these people. 
They're going to throw you in the meat grinder. Totally. And the way it applies to the vaccine in particular, I remember having a conversation with my wife where I was in shock and awe at the level of of the, the size of the club that state held through COVID. I remember when I found out that Epic Resorts in Colorado didn't want to shut down, but the governor said you have to. Hey, massive corporation with decades long success. You have to fucking shut down because we say so. And and restaurant owners, tons of private businesses, huge swaths of industry that would have chosen to stay open were forced to just shut down because one or two people said so. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And most of the people I was looking around at were like, yeah, we got to do it because of this COVID thing. And that's where I realized how, how different I'm wound than much of the collective consciousness, which is a risk. You are str- swimming upstream if you're freedom oriented. Just to, I know Bitcoiners are across the spectrum, but Bitcoin's boxed itself, which is another risk if we have time, I'll get into, into some narratives. And some of those narratives may get on the wrong side of the voting public. I would just wanted to reiterate it's on the spectrum rather than across the spectrum. But um, <laughs> I was just going to say, I was, I was talking to my brother this morning and my brother, he's got a, a master's in English literature. He studied philosophy, like he lives in London. He's a smart guy, very socialist in his approach to things. And he was just like- But he works at Starbucks? But I wish he, I wish he worked <laughs> at Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you would. Tons of degrees, tons of degrees. Super smart, doesn't earn any money, and is borderline in poverty. No, Do- I'm just kidding. That's the story for a lot of people, though. That well, that essentially is his story. He doesn't work at Starbucks, but he doesn't earn any money. And the thing that's really interesting this morning is just like the reason why I'm in this position is because of capitalism, because house prices are going up. And, and I asked him, I was just like, why do you think house prices are going up? And he was just like, because of greed. I was like, it's not because of greed. It's because of our money is worth less over time. So people. Because our money is worth less, people look to store value in something else because the money no longer meets that need. And the reason why money is losing value is because of socialist policies and socialist agendas and, and, and funding kind of uh, government operations. And he refused to even have the conversation and hung up on me. And what's interesting Sucks. is like this is where I think it's really challenging and, and both to Josh and Daniel point, which is it doesn't actually matter what truth is. It doesn't matter mm. how amazing Bitcoin is. It doesn't matter if Bitcoin actually has, like, let's just say hypothetically, Bitcoin could solve all of the issues in the world. It actually doesn't matter because ultimately what the public believe is ultimately what goes. And so that's where our job is essentially just to persuade the public that Bitcoin mm. has the power to create change. Yes. And that's, it's kind of back to we create our own truth, right? We create like whatever the collective consciousness kind of ideates is reality. For the for even for the majority of people that don't want it or, or go kicking and screaming, and I think that would easily you know be on the on the radar for us. Is this the reason that we do this? Because we're hoping to reach as many people with some what we believe is sense in the world. Like by not just throwing out those ideas, having episodes like this where we can actually present the other side of the argument too. And I really do wish that people that people could be at least agreeable enough is confrontational as these kinds of idea spaces are like I could recommend a socialist a book to read and I'll read the book that he gives me like I've done enough I can't remember the Karl Marx book off the top of my head but I've read a couple of books by him just because I was like I need to actually read this not take whatever crazy ideas these people are espousing as 
the reality of socialism and read some of the stuff the guy actually wrote. And it's a lot more muted than you would expect, you know, than, than most people proffer that socialism is, but that's an entirely other conversation. It raises a good point though, mate, because a lot of people, because of the monetary system, we're all flogged out and fucked. We don't have time to read. Like I don't, I'm, we're a rare breeds. Us four on this call, we read a ton. We're rare breeds in the bigger scheme of things. So people rely on sources, trusted sources, to provide them and inform them on how the world works. And at the moment, the way the world works is framed as capitalism. People see problems with it and how it's affecting them. So they think the other alternative solution is socialism. And that's why we see this rise in this shift of because people aren't taking the time to educate themselves on the on the actual sources that will be able to provide some form of truth. Well, what we deem as truth, right? So we're we're all very objectionable people. We will go and seek out those counter arguments. We'll go and seek out the resources to get an understanding of the other side. And that is just simply not happening throughout society, mainly because we're too fucking tired and overworked trying to navigate the system we're in. Just keep our heads above water, keep food on the table and a roof over our head. So this is why you know, like to, like you said, Josh, this is so fucking important. What we do at Looking Glass, what you guys are doing with this pod, and what people are actively trying to do is just make more of this education available for people to be able to to you know upskill themselves because we we just realise that nobody's going to read a hundred books on praxeology or economics yeah. or Keynesianism. I mean, econ books, that. man, are they dry? <laughs> It's hard, man. Have you, have you guys ever tried reading Human Action by Mises? Oh my I've God, given, that is one I've of the driest tr- fucking books I've ever seen in my life. I've fucking eight times and I've barely I, tapped into it. I just skimmed it for the highlights, man. I'm going to be honest. That book is rough. Uh, what do you guys think about hitting some of like one of the tech side of these things? Like maybe like a 51% attack vector, that type of thing? I was just about to say that. Yeah. Was, yeah. So I would say, and this is what I genuinely believe uh, is one of the biggest threats. And it goes back to that um, famous, what is it? The famous quote at the start of um, The Big Short, which is not, not what you don't know that hurts you, it's what you know that just ain't so. And yeah. mm, I say that great. because a perfect example is, say, ordinals. We bloated the mempool and people were genuinely concerned about the viability of Bitcoin because of ordinals. Well, Bitcoin uh, ordinals was made possible because of Taproot, I believe, and a few other kind of changes to the network. And so the reality is that we have to adapt constantly to our changing environment but the problem is we cannot foresee what changes will do and the second order third order and fourth order effects of any changes and so i think it's really important to have humility as an individual and a perfect uh, example of this is say bip 300 that's happening uh with the drive chains is that you cannot say that making a change to the bitcoin uh, code has no downside risk you can never ever say that because one slight little change can open up a whole lot of other potential possibilities you have not thought of. And so I think one of the biggest threats to Bitcoin is actually ourselves. It's not all these external threats. There's making a change to the Bitcoin code that ultimately opens up an attack vector uh, that compromises Bitcoin. Totally. I have written under my subheading of notes here, technical risk. And the first thing I have is Bitcoin is created by humans and it is run by humans. It is not just governed by the laws of nature. Yes, it is a 
profoundly and robustly decentralized network on a scale we've never seen before. And it mirrors a lot of things in nature. And it has a lot of characteristics that we've talked about ad nauseum that are anti-fragile with distributed consensus. But changes will be made. They have been made. And it's hard to perfectly predict their impact on the future, as you just said, Seb. The, the other thing, just under this technical un- bubble, and we could probably spend a whole episode on technical risks. I wish we had time, but there are unknowns and there are imperfections that have already existed on the technical side of Bitcoin. Like, if you're not familiar with the value overflow incident from 2010, you need to go research it. Catastrophic Bitcoin bug that printed like 184 billion Bitcoins that a soft fork needed to happen within five hours for Bitcoin to move forward. Now, the network's grown way more resilient since then. There's been so many more eyes on the code base since then. But Bitcoin has had bugs that needed fixes. It's not impossible that it has them again. And there are certain aspects of Bitcoin's incentive scheme that are currently unproven. Like we, we the transition to a fee-based system instead of a primarily block subsidy system. There's a lot of reasons to believe that's going to work really well. But we haven't even gotten close to approaching that. And this goes back to just disarming the level of certainty. How can you know what the terrain looks like on a mountain you haven't even hiked to yet? You need to make sure you've got good hiking shoes on and you've got your eyes open. And maybe you've got some bear bells if there's some grizzlies around because we haven't been there yet. And there there are things like this in Bitcoin, even with how anti-fragile and robust it's been to date. When we were thinking about legitimate things to break bitcoin bips in my mind are the are the the number one um so for anyone unfamiliar uh, a, a bip is a bitcoin improvement proposal so we have developers that look at the code look at the future of bitcoin look at the different things that we might like to do with bitcoin and they propose changes to the code and we put an inherent amount of trust on the experts within the field so there's a two pronged threat here for me for my mind is who those developers are um i don't know any of them personally um you know that i'm familiar with a few that go on various podcasts but i rely on that community of people going through these proposals and telling me what is good what is needed what the security threats are and my biggest worry is that we overlook something we put something through as a as an improvement proposal and we introduce an inflationary bug or we introduce a backdoor or we introduce something that will fundamentally change it now i'm a i'm a quite a technical guy i can't read the fucking bitcoin code i can understand coding but i've never taken the time to go through line by line and understand what the fuck is going on here particularly when it comes to bitcoin proposals man i can't i don't even know how to operate fucking github for fuck's sake it, it's a complex fucking beast you know <laughs> that's just where they store these uh, repositories for these suggestions and the files for people to go through so it's over time i see who are these developers as we attract like people aren't going to work on bitcoin forever like you know people get bored people go move on to other things new people come in they're bringing new perspectives so that cycling through all these developers that we put an inherent amount of trust in will evolve over time and with that evolution you'll have different perspectives and different experiences and different um things, ideas around what we think we should do on Bitcoin. My default is don't fuck with the base layer. You want to go and do other things, go and do it on another layer. Go and do it on a side chain like Liquid. 
don't fuck with the base chain. And I just hope that that kind of attitude prevails into the future. But I really do see that as, as you know, say this BIP300 were to pop up. If BIP300 popped up and I had Adam back, uh, you know, Shinobi and a couple of others who I happen to know say, hey, this BIP300 is a great idea. I'm probably going to run that code on my node, putting trust and an inherent amount of trust in in those people that that I I I do I, I am familiar with and I do trust to a, a level. Uh, uh, but there is the possibility that they overlook something, and that's sure. the biggest threat to Bitcoin moving forward. In my I mind, I totally agree, and that's that's something I've been harping on a lot lately, just in our private talks and stuff. And I was thinking about this the way the best way to present it. And it's almost like. We're going to hire a lawyer, right? If we've got a problem, we need a, a contract read or something. But I speak English and I can read. I can read the contract myself, but I still hire somebody who is more um, well-educated on how the law works to look through and read this thing to make sure it works correctly. I Now, when we compare that to the world of code, as you just said, Daz, I can't read. I can't even read the code. I, I mean, I can look at it and see it, but it might as well be Greek or Latin to me. And that in my mind is the biggest risk in this whole thing because I can't personally verify it. You use the T word back there. You have to trust that somebody else is not only honest, but they know what they're doing. You have to trust them. And it, this goes back to weird talking about, you know, the Catholic church in the middle ages, like those people, the plebes couldn't read Latin. They couldn't read the Bible because it was all written in Latin. The priest did read Latin and he read it to them and he could manipulate them in any way he wanted to by reading the Bible and interpreting it whichever way he wanted to for the Sunday sermon or however that went back then. They had no idea. They sold him indulgences because they trusted the priest that the priest is, you know, reading from the, the good book, the good, the good book said, we can sell you heaven and we're going to sell it to you. I don't believe that anyone in this space, Adam Bax, Shinobi are being deceitful in any way but there's not only the deceitful side of it there's also the maybe they really don't know what they're talking about <laughs> as much as that is like a crazy thing to say in the space i don't know about any of that stuff that is a black box to me so in my mind that is the penultimate risk that we're all facing at least the people that can't read code and even if you can read it have you actually done it have you gone through line by line and do you understand it well enough to tell yourself yes I can put my entire net worth in this. Look at the trust in just uh, Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX. People from all over the world in the most powerful of positions put their trust in Sam Bankman-Fried and it was a scam. And that's not to say, obviously, we've got a lot more measures in place on Bitcoin. But as a newbie who's entering the space, it takes a long time to develop that trust. And even then, you can never know for certain whether or not what someone's intentions are, what their opinions are. Uh, whether or not they've got certain incentives and whatnot. If only those photos of him deep throating a zucchini come out before <laughs> all this happened. <laughs> uh, what did they call that little arrangement they had? There were like nine people in a, uh, damn it, I'm not coming up with it, but they had like a, a giant swingers club where like the nine executives just scissored each other. Autistic menagerie. <laughs> <laughs> Can't trust them. Guys, it's also it's not as though the entire dev community agrees on everything either. Like there is infighting and differences in perspective of the people that can read the code. I mean, someone that we want on this show is Eric Wall. Like he he's a Bitcoiner, but he has concerns with aspects of the trajectory. 
So it's not like all the high priests even agree. And this is just that I love this necessary humility dose injection that you just gave, Josh. If you don't read code, there's an element to which you need to shut the fuck up with your level of just absolute certainty that this thing is is just perfectly constructed. Like it, to some extent, the cart is in front of the horse. I mean, even at this conference we're at, there's it's a very financially, and we, we're a financial economic forward podcast. That's the primary lens we come from. But you got, you know, asset managers and people in finance up on stage. And Josh and I are interacting with Keith McKay on the side. He's working for Seed Signer. He's a dev. He's a coder. Guy's freaking brilliant. Really right. gets what's under what's going on under the hood of Bitcoin. Josh and I are wearing speaker passes. A couple of loser firemen who are on stage. And this dude's just moping around. No one asked him to speak. Guys dropping dick jokes on stage are... Yeah. And Keith is just like, oh, I just do the real work. No big deal. <laughs> I mean, clearly he didn't say that, but that's what it's actually happening. We do need to support these developers and the technically motivated in this community tremendously. And Josh, we should think more about putting our money where our mouth is with some of our BCB proceeds. And I say that to everybody, like even if it's a small amount, maybe maybe donate to the cause where it makes sense, because a lot of us talking heads can't really change the oil even under the hood. And there are unknown attack vectors and risks that could exist in the future if we don't have really smart people defending the long-term mission that we all want. Yeah. Do you want to riff on transaction fees? Yeah. So I wanted to get I wanted to talk about that a little bit before because we we glossed over it. But one thing I was thinking about with transaction fees and the Coinbase reward going down every four years. So eventually we're going to get to a point where, you know, it's questionable whether or not that's going to support the miners to the degree which it'll keep security robust enough to be useful, right? So in a situation where Bitcoin is susceptible to attack because let's say a lot of miners just can't afford to mine anymore because electricity costs are too high, rewards are too small or some combination thereof. Now there are suddenly a shitload of miners that are just on the market because they're trying to recover whatever they can. That seems like a very weak position for Bitcoin because somebody who has another incentive besides let's make some money in Bitcoin by mining and decides they want to scoop up a ton of cheap miners and spin up spin them up simply for a 51% attack. So those two attack vectors could almost dovetail together in a in a shitstorm. This could be a real problem for Bitcoin. Yeah, uh, the 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 transaction fee um issue is so just to, I guess, give a bit of background for the listeners, um, as the Coinbase reduces, miners will be purely incentivized based on transactions and transactions alone. Now, we put a fair bit of faith in the fact that there's going to be enough competition for transactions on the base layer to maintain a, uh, a relatively high fee market to entice miners to continue. One thing that I think may present a threat to that is advances in development on other layers. So layer two or layer three, there may very well be another layer in parallel to Lightning that offers transaction throughput but increased security. Uh, so at the moment, you know, we we trade off security for Lightning because we can make transactions, um, you know, cheaply and and effectively. But what if there were another layer two or a side chain or something that was developed that could basically guarantee a similar amount of security for cheaper fees? then that competition on the base layer no longer exists and then that whole transaction fee market is is put at threat. 
and then there's no incentive for miners to keep mining on the base layer. So I think that is a, a relatively um, relevant threat to think through. Totally. And overarchingly, to even zoom out a little bit further, back to what the actual developers, the actual techies are saying about this technology, they're far less confident in the types of language and in the rhetoric they use around Bitcoin. Josh, you sent me the Peter McCormick, Rusty Russell episode. Yeah. The quote that st- stood good. out to me, I think he was talking about proof of work, maybe Bitcoin in general. This guy's been around forever. He lost coins in Mount Gox. He sent the first lightning transaction. He's done a lot of coding. He, he described this as, it's still an experiment. Yes, it's lasted 14 or 15 years, but this is a guy that knows way more than the four of us who's super into it, dedicated his vocation to it, saying, yeah, it's kind of still an experiment. He just said some incredibly, uh, some incredible things that most people wouldn't agree with in Bitcoin. At least the the typical like last couple of years been here and hasn't really heard the arguments played out. I think that's where, honestly, if there's one thing that I, I would take away from this episode, it is just have humility. Like there's no certainty, and so many of these incredible individuals in the space, whether we're talking about like Adam Back or whoever, like these guys have such profound humility that they're able to accept that there is no certainty and. That allows them to see reality, hopefully, as clearly as possible. There's no opinions or beliefs that are impeding us from actually seeing reality as it is. Because in the end, we want to create change. We want to adapt to the changing environment. But you can't do that if you're holding strong beliefs and strong opinions. Mm. Josh, Josh also mentioned this notion of a 51% attack in that environment where you've got low transaction fees and puts pressure on mining institutions which may very well offload a shitload of miners very cheaply and that does open up the opportunity for somebody like a particular nation state like a bad faith actor to be able to accumulate quite a lot of the computational power as long as they've got the energy to plug that into for a 51 percent attack now we've often gamed out the 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 game theory behind why that's not necessarily worthwhile doing a 51 percent attack you're way better if you've got that much energy and computational power it's better off for you to just play the game and participate in the network. Um, and all you'll be able, be able to achieve by having that much hash power is essentially double spending your own coins within the two consecutive blocks. But it's not to understate the fact that if that were to occur, I think that put does put a big question mark on, well, now it's happened. Yes. Right? You can yep. game out all you want the likelihood of that happening in future and it's it's low probability but if it were to actually happen that all of a sudden puts well now we do have someone some actor with 51 percent attack they can do it and they can do it again and they can do it again and they can do it again until such time as 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 that were no longer the case but as soon as it happens that does put a relative threat directly onto onto bitcoin at that point in time yes yeah, they could also just not put any transactions on the block. They could d- deny all transactions. Yep. And they could right. keep doing that for as long exactly. as they could afford to. This makes me think of something else Rusty said, which was he kind of talked in the beginning of his conversation with Peter, and we'll link this show down below. He talked about how, in a sense, proof of work and what Bitcoin's built on kind of brings shivers up the spine of a cryptographer. Because it's not totally asymmetrical. Like there is a known attack factor. You need fifty-one percent of the processing power. Like it's it's straight out there how you attack it. Now we've spent a full episode talking about why proof of work works so well, 
but there is a way that it unwinds. And one of the things I often came out on the other side is to say that that to say that attacking Bitcoin and trying to get more of the hash rate and then screwing Bitcoin over isn't an economic motivation might be narrow minded because if you are the incumbent, right, the U.S. government, and let's just say that USD hegemony is under serious threat because of Bitcoin. Well, you are economically motivated to prove that Bitcoin can be broken because the moment you prove that it can be broken, its value starts to unwind. Its anti-fragility starts to be brought into question. Now, we all know that attacking the network at 51% is a thousand times easier said than done. If you don't understand how this works, you've got all these supply chain issues. This is a massively distributed global market. But if we are in a scenario where mining gets really centralized in one jurisdiction, which it did in China in the past, and to some extent is starting to do in the US, you have a ton of industrial miners. What if daddy walks in there and Uncle Sam says, all right, this is all ours now. Or like you said, Josh picks a bunch of miners up in the middle of a vicious bear market that nobody expected would last as long as it did. It's n- yeah. Back to Rusty's point, we are running a bit of an experiment here. It's working marvelously and it's got signs that it'll work into perpetuity, but we don't know that for sure. The, uh, there was a quote I found from Gavin Andreessen from 2012 when he was talking about what they could do in the in the case of a 51% attack, and he said they could insert, and so this would take a, this would be a fork, obviously, but they could create a line of code that basically says, ignore a longer chain orphaning the current best chain if the sum is less than the sum of the orphan chain. So basically, they could, if you decided you were going to 51% attack and you were not including transactions or you were excluding certain transactions, even if you had the tip of the blockchain, if you had the longest chain, that could still potentially be excluded by some new code that would pick the one that is actually um, not delineating specific transactions. Yeah. I love, by the way, I'm going to out Daz's comment in the messages because I love it. He goes, I reckon we have to do a follow-up episode so we don't end this on a Debbie Downer. I'm depressed and selling all my corn. <laughs> uh, yeah, this episode's like... I'm I'm fucking loving this episode, by the way. This is like right up my alley. It's right up all four of our alleys to some extent and that it's all making us uncomfortable. But this is the beauty of the, the honest intellectual journey. If you don't sit in the rain occasionally and flip over to the other side, there's evidence right there that you're trapped. And um, we've, as I've said, we've spent so much time on the other side of these issues. It's good to make people feel uncomfortable. One other point I was going to make was just as we talk about technical risks in general, thinking I had this label in my notes as just futuristic speed risks. The speed and magnitude of change in the digital age is so tremendous and accelerated and multiplied that it's hard to predict what even is coming over the horizon. And so just because something appears to be working, you constantly need to, to keep your eyes out for predators in a jungle that's evolving and changing this quickly. And I think quantum computing slots under here. We don't know that the cryptography that Bitcoin is based on is going to work in the year 2110. We don't know what that's going to look like. And Bitcoin may need to evolve or maybe it gets devoured. Who knows? But to project centuries out in the future in an environment that's changing this quickly, not to sound pessimistic, but sometimes feels like an exercise in futility to me. Yeah, I was actually going to bring up quantum computing as well. Um, so, like, what we know about quantum computing now, the threat is a long 
way away. But to your point, Dan, like technology evolves fucking quick. It could very well, you know, be announced next week that someone's made a breakthrough in quantum computing and what we have assumed is going to take decades in order to be able to to build out to a level that's a, a real threat to cryptography could very well be right around the corner and we just don't know it. Um, so it's those unknown attack vectors that are sitting around the corner through advances in technology that you can't account for. You can't yeah. comfortably sit here and say that quantum computing is zero threat. It is now with what we know about the technology that exists now, but what is lying under that rock? Don't know. What is interesting too is you just talked about the unknowns, but what about the unknown unknowns? Like the ones we haven't even talked about or thought mm. of yet. Those are the ones that yep. uh, that are really the snakes in the grass that you got to be careful of. And they are matching the fauna. Now, I thought of them all. Alien tech and they come and they change it to <laughs> co-opt us all. Guys, one thing though to flip over for a second is this is one of the beauties of Bitcoin too, is its ability to evolve. You aren't married completely to the current version. And this is through consensus. We can, like in the quantum computing scenario, we can change things and alter things to keep things cryptographically sound in our favor. So the, the, the openness yeah. and, and the malleability of Bitcoin, which may sound startling and concerning, that, that is an asset in Bit, or, or a strength of Bitcoin as we play out the unknown unknowns. Yeah, I can guarantee you if some shit hits the fan, Bitcoin's not going to be so, so slow to change if it literally has to or dies. Right. Daz mentioned something earlier, which is just like, we should not change the main chain. And obviously what he's referring to in that sense is just like, we're not, we shouldn't just bolt on unnecessary changes. But the reality is that we are going to have to make changes. And it's about finding that balance between what is a necessary change versus what is a nice to have that we're just trying to attach and make this thing more utility friendly, more usable and whatnot. And it's, and it's really hard because that's a subjective answer and it's unique to every single individual. And that's where I think ultimately when it comes to Bitcoin, Bitcoin success is built upon the community. And that's where, again, make your, do your research rather than just trusting people blindly. Right. As we close this thing, I want to put you all on the spot and ask you, after having talked about all these different risks, what is your honest thought about the probability of success that Bitcoin has at this time and date? What do you define as success? Um, that it's still around in 50 years. Let's put it at 50 years. So, uh, very highly <laughs> likely in my mind. So I think, you know, and it's, and it's kind of one of my closing points I was going to say is, is this episode was designed to trigger you as a listener. There are many of the things we've brought up today, which I have very good counter arguments for, but we purposely didn't go down that route because we wanted to instill the thought process behind you getting comfortable with a lot of these things and being comfortable with it with yourself. So these aren't new things to me that I have not thought about and tried to game out. And I have a lot of good counter arguments for these. Can't be 100% certain, but they exist. And so, so just to circle back to your point, Josh, is I'm comfortable enough, like the, the my allocation to this as a personal um, uh, percentage of my net worth is still very high. Knowing all of these things that we've spoken about today, I'm comfortable enough that most of this has been gamed out and that I'm going to be able to flag it enough with enough notice to be able to make a, a change to me 
so that's not meaningful and I'm not hanging on to this thing too long. But I think everybody needs to have a little bit of, like we said today, humility and intellectual curiosity to keep learning with this thing because there are threats, there are underlying currents, there are underlying themes that may very well put a threat to this into the future. And if you're not staying on, if it does form part of your, a large part of your portfolio, portion of your portfolio, you have to do the work. You have to keep your finger on the pulse to see if any of these theses that we've spoken about today are coming true. And if they are, reassess, reevaluate, reposition as needed. And everybody owes it to themselves to do that. To buy this thing and just park it away and not keep your finger on the pulse is just irresponsible in my mind. If you feel like we've ripped you today or you're hurting or you're scared after listening to this, either A, you've deployed too much capital if you're that scared of, of thinking about these failure modes, and B, you need to do some more research. Well said. Um, I'll say some closers and then I'll hand it to you, Seb. I think the probabilities are very high that Bitcoin is around in 50 years. I think it's also extremely likely that this is going to accrue more real value from where it is today. I think the buying power of a Bitcoin is extremely likely to go up. And to Daz's point a second ago, I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I'm investing a lot of my hard-earned funds into this protocol because I think the probability of success is very high. The question has to be asked, which I think you threw out, Seb, though, what is your definition of success? If your definition of success is that this is the world reserve currency and takes over the entire monetary language of human beings, that I view as, as not nearly as probable as the two things I've just mentioned, that it'll be around and that, we'll, that it will accrue more value. That's much more unknown and unproven to me. So I think the definition of success is important. Uh, Jason Meyer, he says... I think Bitcoin can make the world a better place, even if it stays at its current price forever. So I think another point to be made is Bitcoin has already succeeded in a tremendous way. It's allowed for liquidity and movement of value across time and space outside of the prevailing financial system. We're already there. We've accomplished a lot as is. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's very probable that it remains decentralized and secure with a fixed number of units. Um, I, I also will, will just end by saying, you nailed it, Josh. If this is shaking your foundation, I get it. But it indicates that you need to do something. You need to learn more. You need to think this through more on your own, or maybe you need a decreased position size. Because saying things like, Bitcoin is inevitable, Bitcoin has already won, things like this aren't helpful, and they're just not true. Nothing is certain, Bitcoin included. I think both of you guys have made such good points. And yeah, to kind of echo what you said, Dan, I think when we, when we look at Bitcoin, I think nothing is certain. And I, I just want to like hammer home that point. And for me, kind of in response to your question, Josh, it's, I think the perspective or the, what we deem as success is really important. For me, the way I see it is that we're on a course, a crash course that is slowly extracting our time and energy with the fear system. And it's meaning that we are struggling to be our authentic selves or listening to what it is that we need as individuals. And I truly <coughs> believe that success for me is just seeing greater adoption. It doesn't need to be a world reserve currency. It doesn't, as you said, it doesn't need to be a world reserve currency. It's just, it needs to be able to give people the option to opt out of the system that is 
uh, detracting from them. It's not allowing them to be who they want to be. And so I think Bitcoin is already succeeding and I believe it will be around in 50 years. As for what that looks like, to be honest, I, I probably can't even fathom. I think it could go one of both ways. It could be truly incredible at the same time. It could be the same price yeah. as it is now. And so I, th I think that we can't necessarily predict exactly what's going to happen. But I think Bitcoin has the potential to kind of bring people back into their authentic selves. It has a lot, gives people the ability to express themselves monetarily, which our current system doesn't. And so ultimately, for me, the economic benefit of Bitcoin rising in price is, of course, that makes a difference. But ultimately, for me, it's more on the social level, how it impacts society, how it impacts the humanitarian aspect of how we interact with one another. And I think Bitcoin has the potential to change the world on a on a much grander scale than just given making people have more money. Great way to end too. Like another way to repackage what you said, Seb, which you've hit out a couple times in the episode is like narratives matter for adoption. And if this thing, even if it's designed perfectly and it's got tons of potential to rectify a lot of wrongs and fix a lot of incentives in our monetary system, if it grows increasingly isolationist and extreme, even in its community and messaging, that could be a risk to its success, or at least your definition of success. There are a lot of great ideas that have never come to fruition in history because they weren't packaged right or messaged correctly. And that may sound froofy and inconvenient for those that say, this thing's just going to hum no matter what. Well, people don't like it and they don't want to use it and they want to vote against it. That may not be true. And I was going to add one more point, actually, which is I believe genuinely is a threat and I believe that the toxic maximalism is a threat to Bitcoin. And I may get a lot of pushback on this, but I believe toxic maximalism is a threat to Bitcoin because the way I see it is that toxic maximalism is like parenting in the 40s and 50s. It's the when someone doesn't agree with your opinion, you hit them with the ruler, you kick them outside. Yeah. And the reality is that I believe that if we want adoption, people have to be curious, people have to be interested. And I believe most people have fallen down the altcoin route. Most people have found some glimmer in that area, and that's totally fine. But what happens is that that curiosity ultimately leads you back to Bitcoin as long as you're open. But the problem is when we have people being aggressive, people shutting down anyone with a differing opinion, you shut down that curiosity, you prevent people from wanting to move over to this thing that has potential. So I think that toxic yes. maximalism has the potential to impede our ability to move forward because people don't want to look at Bitcoin purely from a societal standpoint because they believe they're bickering and fighting their aggressive group of individuals. For sure. It's a carrot or stick, right? We want to feed with the carrot. If you hit them with the stick, they're just going to hate you and they're not going to want to be involved in whatever the nonsense you're up to. So Seb, thank you. We thank Daz, even though he had to take off a few minutes ago. It was a pleasure. This was a really fun episode. I agree. No, it's, su it's such a blast. You guys... You guys crush it, and I think I say at the end of every single one, but I just want to reiterate, I think you guys do such a service to the community, and I've listened to a ton of your podcasts, and I've, I know many people that have as well, and the value you create is phenomenal, and so don't stop doing what you guys are doing, because we, we value it, and I'm sure I speak for millions of others. Back at the two Back of you. you. Echo that. Uh, you will both be on again. We have plans. We won't, uh, we'll, we won't throw out too many teasers here, but... Daz and Seb will be returning. It's a lively, fruitful conversation. We love it every single time. Highlight of our month. Take care, my friend. Thanks a lot, guys. See you, Seb. That does it for this one. As hard as it was for the four of us to take some of these sides, 
This was honestly one of our favorite episodes we've done to date. This sort of exercise is representative of what we believe to be the foundation of sound thinking. The world is stuffed full of overconfident, shallow thinkers. Don't be one. Live out the Bitcoin ethos of don't trust, verify. If you like this show and want more people to hear about it, it would be huge for us if you take just a minute or two out of your day right now to go rate us on whatever app you're using and leave us a review, or just tell a friend about an episode you particularly enjoyed or resonated with. If you aren't listening to us on the Fountain app, you should be. Download it and start earning free Bitcoin the moment you click play. Trust us, there's no catch. We appreciate each one of you listeners. Take care and I hope each one of you highly evolved monkeys has a fantastic week.